This is Steve Dupuy with the Continuing Church of God. Today I want to talk about a particular holy day called the Passover. Why did God command a holy day called Passover? What is the Passover? What is its purpose? As we look for the answers to those questions, I want to leave in with a little story. Sadly, this story is based in truth. Several months ago, COVID-19 struck the world. As it reached pandemic, pandemic proportions, there was a lot of information available on how to minimize the risk of contracting the virus. Overnight, the meaning of social distancing in both meters and feet was understood worldwide as the healthy distance to maintain between two shoppers at the grocery store. Wear a mask and wash your hands constantly were also listed as preventative measures. As I was researching other means of protecting myself, I came across another suggestion that seemed to make sense. The suggestion had to do with diet. The author was suggesting that eating two servings of fruit, uh, high in vitamin C, per day would help a person stay healthy, which would also benefit in avoiding contracting the virus, and in the event I did contract the virus, being healthier would help with a faster recovery. That made sense to me, and the only extra effort required on my part was to take my mask off long enough to eat two servings of fruit per day. I decided to eat my, two, my uh, two servings of fruit in the morning with my usual cup of coffee. And for my two servings of fruit, I chose an apple fritter and a blueberry muffin. A month or so goes by, and one morning I was drinking my cup of coffee and eating my two servings of fruit. I started thinking to myself, you know, this pandemic isn't so bad after all. Another three or four months go by with me blissfully trying to avoid contracting the virus by dutifully eating my two servings of fruit every morning when I noticed something unusual when I went to get my cup of coffee. I noticed I could no longer see my toes. Something was terribly wrong. Was this the first signs of the virus? Was there a new, more deadly virus on the scene I hadn't heard about? As I was trying to figure out what happened, I put on my suit coat and the button fell off. That's when it dawned on me that I may be eating too much fruit. So I did some more research to see what else I could learn. It seems I was supposed to eat my fruit plain and not wrapped in an envelope of dough. I had missed the mark. I was told to eat two servings of plain fruit, but not, to not eat the fruit covered with dough. One fruit led to health, the other fruit led to obesity. I ate from the fruit that led to obesity. What could I do now that I had missed the mark and eaten from the fruit that leads to obesity? Was there anything that could humanly be done? Once I missed the mark, could the process of obesity be halted or even reversed? Well, as it turns out, the answer is yes. The process can be halted and reversed totally by human means. All I had to do was stop eating from the fruit of obesity and start eating from the fruit of health and I would soon be able to see my toes. I got myself into this mess and I could get myself out. Problem solved. But what happens when I miss the mark from God's point of view? What does it mean to miss the mark from God's point of view? What are the consequences of missing the mark from God's point of view? If there are consequences that result from missing the mark, can they be reversed by human effort? Well, first look at what it means to miss the mark from God's point of view. We'll start in 1 John 3, verse 4. 1 John 3, verse 4. Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And from the King James Version of 1 John 3, verse 4, Whoever committeth sin transgresseth the law, for sin is a transgression of the law. So, sin is a transgression or violation of the law. 
What law? The law of love God and love man. These are the two great commandments on which all the other laws hang. We are told this in Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40. What are some of the other laws that hang on those two commandments? The Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are the definition of how to love God and love man. And 1 John 3, verse 4 is telling us that sin is the violation of the Ten Commandments. Now let's look closer at Strong's definition of the word sin as used in that verse. The word sin has a Strong's number of 3588 combined with 266. Let's first look at Strong's 3588. It's pronounced ho, including the feminine he and the neuter too. In all their inflections, the definite article the, sometimes to be supplied, at others omitted in English. So it's the, this, that, one, he. So that portion of the word of sin is saying the sin, this sin, or one sin. Now let's look at Strong's number 266. Hamartia is how that seems to be pronounced. And it's from the New Testament uh, Strong's number 264, which means a sin. So Strong's 266 means sin or offense and comes from Strong's number 264. Lastly, let's look at Strong's number 264. Hamartano. Um, it means to properly, means to miss the mark, and so not share in the prize. Figuratively, to err, especially morally, to sin. So we find in number 264 the base meaning of sin is to miss the mark, especially to sin. But also, very importantly, we find the understanding that the result of missing the mark is to not share in the prize. What prize? We will see what prize we are not to share in as we proceed with additional verses. But the bottom line is yes, we can miss the mark from God's perspective. It is called sin. And sin is the transgression of the law. Next we will find out when the mark uh, was missed for the first time. Who was it that first missed the mark? What the consequences of missing the mark were? What prize was not shared in as a result of missing the mark? And can the consequences of missing the mark be humanly reversed? To find out the answer to many of these questions, we have to start at the beginning. So let's turn to Genesis 1, verse 26. In Genesis 1, verse 26, God said, Let us make man in our own image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. On the sixth day, God created human beings in His image. God created a family. We read earlier in 1 John that sin is missing the mark, and missing the mark is lawlessness. We are further told in Ezekiel 18.4, Behold, all souls are mine. The soul of the Father as well as the soul of the Son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. Here in Ezekiel, we are now told of the consequences of sin. Missing the mark, or sinning, results in death. Now we'll look at Genesis 2, verse 9. Genesis 2, verse 9. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God made arrangements for his family to live forever by placing the symbolic tree of life in the garden. His children were free to eat of that tree of life any time they wanted to. To eat of the tree of life was to obey the law of God. The tree of life 
was the prize for not missing the mark. No one would surely die for eating the tree of life. However, God wanted his children to make up their own mind whether or not they wanted to be part of his family through the love of obedience or whether they wanted to reject becoming a member of his family through the rebellion of disobedience. That rebellion was represented by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Drop down to Genesis 2, verses 16 and 17. And the Lord God made the man, uh, commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. In these verses, God is commanding his children, which includes us, not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or they would die. They would have missed the mark and not been able to share in the prize of becoming children of God. So, God told all his children, starting with Adam, not to sin by eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or they would miss the mark and die. In order to score a bullseye and not miss the mark required faith and obedience from Adam and Eve. They had to obey God and not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they had to believe God and eat of the tree of life in order to receive the prize. We will see that faith and obedience are still required in order to score a bull's mark, a bullseye, I'm sorry, in order to score a bullseye and hit the mark. First, let's see what decision God's first two children made by turning to Genesis 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave it to her husband with her, and he ate. They both disobeyed the commandment of their father and sinned as did we all. The fact that Adam sinned is confirmed in Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world, and death through sin. Let's also understand that the scriptures confirm that we have all missed the mark by reading 1 John, 1 John 1, verse 10. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Here's a point to consider. In Romans 5, we are told that Adam sinned. Ezekiel told us that the soul that sins shall die. 1 John told us that the sin is the transgression of the law. And Genesis 2.17 just told us that eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil would result in death. Therefore, eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is sin. So, if sin is the transgression of the law, and the law was given to Moses on Mount Sinai centuries after the creation of Adam and Eve, how is it that Adam and Eve sinned? The only answer is that there must have been the law of God prior to Mount Sinai. All of God's family chose death instead of life. We all missed the mark. Therefore, none of us will share in the prize. Death is eternal. The family of God is now sentenced to eternal death instead of eternal life. This is not simply a matter of changing our diet and eating of the tree of life. In Genesis 3.24, God cut off the way to the tree of life. The sentence had been passed. There is no humanly way possible for any human being to bring himself back from the death. Let's read Matthew 19, verses 25 through 26. Matthew 19, verses 25 and 26. When his disciples heard it, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said to them, With men this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. The disciples asked Jesus who could be saved. Jesus told them it was impossible for men to accomplish this feat. It was impossible for humanity to restore themselves back to life. 
But with God, all things are possible. God was the only way to cancel the debt of eternal death and replace it with the prize of eternal life as one of His begotten children. And that is exactly what God intends to do. Save His family from death. God has a plan. Let's continue reading uh, in Genesis to begin to understand God's plan. This is the first time the plan of God is hinted at. The step-by-step -step plan is not revealed here. It is only referred to. So we start reading in Genesis chapter 3, verse 9. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to me, uh, to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. These verses start out with God calling out to Adam. Upon being told what they did, which, by the way, was not the same as Adam and Eve confessing their sins and expressing sorrow and repentance. God questioned them further. When Adam is done blaming Eve, and Eve is done blaming Satan, God confronts Satan. Look at verse 15. God reveals that the woman will bear a son, and God tells Satan what his fate is going to be. Jesus Christ will crush his head. It is the royal seed of the woman that is the center point of God's plan of salvation. This is the first time God reveals he has a plan. The Bible does not reveal that Adam and Eve even knew God had a plan of salvation until after they missed the mark. God only told them what the consequences of sin would be. It is also very possible that this is the first time Satan learned what his fate would be for his role in causing sin to enter the world. Prior to humanity's sin, there was no need for a plan of salvation. Humanity started out in a position of receiving the prize of eternal life. They did not need to be restored to the position of receiving the prize and becoming a born again child of God until they sinned. That does not mean God did not have a plan. It simply means the plan did not need to be revealed or put into action. God's plan is partially revealed through what are referred to as holy days. Let's take a quick look at all seven of the holy days as recited in Leviticus chapter 23, beginning in verse 4. Leviticus 23, beginning in verse 4. These are the feasts of the Lord, holy conventions which you shall proclaim at their appointed times. On the fourteenth day of the first month at twilight is the Lord's Passover. The Passover is the first step in the plan, and the step we will focus on. But let's take a quick look at the rest of the steps. Immediately following that, uh, we have the seven days of unleavened bread. Leviticus 23, verses 6 through 8. And on the fifteenth day of the same month of the, is the feast of unleavened bread to the Lord. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. But you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord for seven days. The seventh day shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. Dropping down to verse 15. This is the commandment for Pentecost. Leviticus 23, verse 15. And you shall come for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day that you brought the sheaf of the wave offering, seventh Sabbath shall be completed. Count fifty days to the Sabbath after the seventh Sabbath, then you shall offer a new grain offering to the Lord. As I said, we are just highlighting the holy days. 
Feel free to uh, read the entire chapter for a more complete description of the Holy Days. We're just listing them at this time. Now drop down to verse 23 for a highlight of the Day of the Lord as spoken of in the book of Revelation. The last trumpet blown during the Day of the Lord will herald the second coming of Jesus Christ. Leviticus 23, verse 23. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a Sabbath rest, a memorial of blowing of trumpets, a holy convocation. In verses 26 and 27, we have a New Testament description of putting away Satan for a thousand years. Verse 26 and 27. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, also, the tenth day of this month shall uh, be the Day of Atonement. It shall be a holy convocation for you. You shall afflict your souls and offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. The Feast of Tabernacles is commanded in verses 34 and 35. Speak to the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of this seventh month shall be a Feast of Tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. The last holy day in God's plan, the last great day, is described in verse 36. For seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation, and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. It is a sacred assembly, and you shall do no customary work on it. So that is the complete list of God's holy days as they relate to His plan of salvation. That's it. Those seven steps will unfold from Genesis to Revelation until all of God's children will be offered salvation. God's first holy day, the weekly Sabbath, was ordained prior to the need for salvation and is not included in the seven-step plan. In Genesis, we were introduced to the consequences of missing the mark from God's point of view. This resulted in the penalty of certain death of God's future family. In Genesis, we were also introduced to the promised seed that would be offered to pay the penalty of certain death for all humanity. The payment of that penalty would result in the family of God, once again, being offered the tree of eternal life. In Leviticus, God outlined the seven-step plan He ordained to offer that tree of life to each and every human being ever conceived. As we recall, the first step in that plan was called the Passover. So just what is the Passover anyway? Exactly what is Passover? Let's look at the Old Testament account of the Passover first, and then we'll proceed to the New Testament account. As we may recall, God promised Abraham some land. Of course, this land is known as the Promised Land. This promise can be found in Genesis 12, verse 1. Now the Lord had said to uh, Abraham, Get out of your country, from your family, and from your father's house, to a land that I will show you. God subsequently promised this land to Abraham's son Isaac and his grandson Israel. Israel's descendants became slaves in Egypt. When the fullness of the time came for God to deliver them from that slavery, He appointed a man named Moses, to accomplish the task. This delivery from slavery is referred to as the Exodus. As it turns out, the Egyptians had dozens, if not hundreds, of false gods. As part of the process of leading his chosen people Israel to the Promised Land, God also proved to the Israelites, as well as to the Pharaoh of Egypt, that there is only one real God. God accomplished this proof by pronouncing ten plagues that befell the nation of Egypt. It is the last plague that finally convinced the Pharaoh that it was in his best interest to let God's people go. It is also this last plague that was, and still is, called the Passover. Let's read Exodus 12, verses 1 through 3. Exodus 12, starting in verse 1. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. 
speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. Now we'll drop down to verse 5. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. And they shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorpost and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. And now let's read the last sentence of verse 11. Exodus 12, last sentence of verse 11. It is the Lord's Passover. So, beginning with the first verse, we see that we are indeed reading about the Lord's Passover. I'm sorry, beginning with the last verse, verse 11. We uh, see we are reading about the Lord's Passover. Now backing up to verses 5, 6, and 7, we see that the Passover actually occurred on the 14th day of the first month of the Hebrew calendar, which is the month of Nisan. The important we want, point we want to discuss in verse 5 is that the lamb was to be unblemished, without defect. Now we'll go back to verse 3. Here we see the lamb was to be chosen on, chosen on the tenth day of the month of Nisan. Why choose the lamb four days prior to the Passover? Why not five days or ten days? Why not just get the lamb on the day of the Passover? Well, interestingly enough, the Bible teaches in 2 Peter 3, verse 8, that a day to the Lord is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is a day. God is revealing to us that from the time when the first Adam missed the mark and incurred the death penalty through unbelief and disobedience, to the time that the second Adam, the unblemished lamb, Jesus Christ, redeem us from that death penalty on Passover in 30 or 31 A.D. would be 4,000 years or four days. Acquiring the Lamb four days prior to the Old Testament Passover was a prophecy of the redemption offered by the coming Messiah on the day of the New Testament Passover. The redemption will require the death of God's only begotten Son. The death of Jesus Christ on Passover is the first appointed step, the first appointed day in God's plan of salvation. But before we look into the New Testament Passover of Jesus Christ, just what was it that was passed over? So we'll continue reading in verse 12 and 13 of Exodus 12. Exodus 12, verses 12 and 13. So I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night, and will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. All and against all the gods of Egypt I will create judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And the plague shall not be uh, on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And then drop down to verses uh, 29 and 30. And it came to pass at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of livestock. So Pharaoh rose in the night, he, all his servants, and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. We see in verse 12 that on the 14th of Nisan, God struck all the firstborn of both man and beast of the Egyptians and executed judgment on the Egyptian gods, showing that those gods were powerless against him. In verse 13, we are told that it was the blood of the Lamb that protected the Israelites from the tenth and final plague God brought on the Egyptians prior to Pharaoh letting the people of Israel leave, the slavery of sin. That sin was a symbolic of eternal death, which first occurred in the Garden of Eden by taking the knowledge of good and evil, thereby missing the mark. We learn in verse 29 that the firstborn of both man and beast of the Egyptians was killed. The physical death of the Israelites and their livestock was passed over by the blood of the Lamb. Notice there are two important aspects required in order 
for the firstborn of the Israelites to be passed over. Those two requirements were the same as they were for Adam and Eve. Those requirements were belief or faith and obedience. The Israelites had to have faith that the blood of the unblemished lamb would save the firstborn from physical death, and they had to obey God and stay inside their homes. Another important aspect of this Passover is that on that night, the physical blood of the unblemished lamb saved the firstborn Israelites from physical death at that time. They all still died later. Of themselves, there was still no human way possible to return from death. That brings us to the New Testament Passover. Let's start by reading that, and uh, let's start by turning to uh, John 1, verse 24 through 31. Now those who were sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, saying, Why do you baptize if you are not the Christ, or Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. It is he who, coming after me, is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to lose. These things were done in uh, Bethabara, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After one comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. This is the account from John the Baptist proclaiming Jesus to be the Lamb of God. As we recall from the Old Testament Passover, that it was an unblemished lamb that was to be sacrificed for the passing over of physical death of the firstborn children of Israel. Starting with the verses we just read, we are about to learn that it is the sacrifice of the unblemished lamb of God that will offer redemption from physical death to not only the firstborn children of the Israelites, but to all humanity which includes all the Israelites, all the Egyptians, and all the rest of humanity, including you and me. However, the sacrifice of the unblemished Lamb of God is not merely temp temporary protection from physical death. It is the actual payment for physical death and the first step in an offer of redemption from eternal life, and from eternal death to eternal life. God accepted the death of the unblemished lamb as payment for our own personal death. We'll read about the details of this as we proceed. Another point we will consider as we proceed is the payment of the death penalty by the shed blood of the unblemished lamb will still require faith and obedience on our part. The shed blood of Jesus Christ is not a get-out-of-jail-free kind. Let's continue by turning to Luke 22, verses 7 through 8. Luke 22, verses 7 and 8. Then came the day of unleavened bread, when the Passover must be killed. And he sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat. This is describing the Passover when Jesus, as the unblemished Lamb of God, will suffer the penalty of death for the sins of all humanity. Now continue reading. Verses 14 through 20. Luke 22, starting in verse 14. When the hour had come, he sat down and the twelve apostles with him. Then he said to them, With fervent desire I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say to you, I will no longer eat of it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took the cup and gave thanks and said, Take this, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after uh, supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. There are two points I want to examine in these verses. The points are in verses 19 and 20. 
want to start with the point being made in verse 21st, and then I'll back, uh, come back to verse 19. Verse 20, uh, Jesus had a cup of wine that all the apostles were to partake of. The wine represented Jesus' shed blood. It also represented the new covenant. The covenant was sealed with blood. When the apostles drank the wine, they agreed to the covenant. Drinking the wine somewhat sealed the contract or covenant between the parties to the contract. So what new covenant was entered into and sealed on that Passover in 30 or 31 AD? Let's read about that in Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin I will remember no more. In verse 31, we are told that the days are coming when God will enter into a new covenant with the house of Israel and Judah. In verse 33, God says He will put His law in their minds and write it on their hearts. This is describing the results of God's plan of salvation that He intends to offer to every human being ever conceived but each in his own order. On that Passover, Jesus entered into that uh, new covenant with his twelve apostles first. And later, with all those that are being called and chosen now in this church age. This was done at Pentecost. The rest of humanity will be offered the opportunity to enter into the new covenant during the great white throne judgment spoken of in the book of Revelation. Thus, all humanity will ultimately be offered the opportunity for redemption from eternal death to eternal life. Just like any covenant, both parties must agree to the contract. In modern lingo, this is referred to as a meeting of the minds. If both parties don't agree to the covenant, then there is no covenant or contract. In that respect, the new covenant is just like the old. We must agree. God will not force us to believe or to obey. He will not force us to become part of His family. The decision to agree to the covenant is an individual decision. It is not a group decision. Therefore, we are told in the middle part of uh, Philippians 2.12 to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. When God puts His laws in our mind and writes them on our heart, He does so with the Holy Spirit. The beginning of this process is when those God has called out, we accept the call, repent, are baptized, and have hands laid on us from a spiritual descendant of the Twelve Apostles, and thereby receive God's Holy Spirit and become begotten children of God. The contract is fulfilled when those that are thereby begotten run the race to the end and are born again. Not everyone is called now to enter the new kind, the new covenant. Now let's talk about verse 19. Verse 19 tells us to eat some broken, unleavened bread. That bread represents the Messiah's sinless, broken body. This is a separate event with a different meaning than verse 20. Verse 20 was entering into a contract or covenant with Jesus. Verse 19 describes the symbolism of becoming one with Him. There are three scriptures I want to refer to that I'm going to read. And uh, you can just jot them down if you like. I'm not going to turn to them. The first is Colossians 3 verse 11. Where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave nor free. But Christ is all and in all. 
So Christ is all and in all. The second is John 14, verses 19 through 21. A little while longer, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you will live also. At that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me. There are three points here. The first is that the Messiah tells us that because he lives, we will live. We will have been passed over from death to life. The second is that Christ is in the Father, and the Father is in us, and we are in Christ. The third point is in the first part of verse 21. Jesus says, the one that loves him is the one that keeps his commandments. Third set of verses I'm going to read are in 1 Corinthians 12, verses 13 and 14. By one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. For, in fact, the body is not one member, but many. Here we are told that we are all baptized into one body. We are one body, but many members. That brings us back to the added symbolism of the broken, unleavened bread. We were already told that the broken, unleavened bread represents Christ's body, which was broken for us. Unleavened bread has the consistency of a crisp cracker, except it is baked without leaven. Unleavened bread can't be cut into identical, even pieces. It breaks into all kinds of different sizes and shapes. The pieces are like the parts of a body. There are many parts, but each part is unique. And the pieces, once broken, can't be put back together again to make a whole. But, when each of us unique parts takes a unique piece of broken, unleavened bread and eats it, even though we are many members, as the scriptures say, because the broken bread represents Christ's broken body, the many members once again become one. We in Christ, and He in us, and all in God. So on this 14th day of Nisan, when we take a sip of wine, let's remember that we have entered into a new covenant, sealed with the shed blood of the Messiah. And when we take of the broken, unleavened body of Christ, let's realize that we, from all around the world, have just become one in Christ. Many members, one body. In the following portion, I am going to use the phrase, nailed to the cross, instead of the correct, nailed to the stake. Because that is the way the phrase is most commonly used, in the context I'm going to discuss. <coughs> a position that is held by some today is that sin was nailed to the cross on Passover. We need to examine that position because a fuller understanding of the Passover requires a clear understanding of that belief. Now if sin were truly nailed to the cross, it would mean that rape, murder, theft, lies, etc. are not sin at all and would not be subject to the penalty of sin, which is death. To be clear, those that adhere to that position, that sin was nailed to the cross, don't really put forth the position so clearly. Instead, they say that the law was nailed to the cross. So let's look at it from the point of view that the law was nailed to the cross. If the law was nailed to the cross, then the Bible makes it perfectly clear that sin had to be nailed to the cross at the very same time. That's why I started out saying uh, those who hold that position say that sin was nailed to the cross. I suppose it's possible that some of those that adhere to that position aren't even aware themselves of the fact that if the law was nailed to the cross, then sin must also have been nailed to the cross. Let's understand from the Word of God that if there were no law, there would be no sin. Let's look at Romans 4, verses 13 through 15. Romans 4, verse 13 through 15. For the promise 
that he would be the heir of the world was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise made uh, of no effect. Because the law brings about wrath. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. We're told in verse 15 that where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, without the law, there can be no sin. All the murder, theft, rape, and lies that took place in the world from the time of Christ's Passover sacrifice to today would not be considered sin if the law had been nailed to the cross because there would be no transgression. Remember, sin is the transgression of the law. We are told in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 56. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Without the law, sin is powerless. Without the law, sin becomes so powerless that it doesn't even exist. Therefore, if the law were nailed to the cross, there would be no sin. Now there was a time when there was no law, and therefore no transgression. But it was not immediately after Jesus was crucified. Let's read about the time when there was no law and no transgression. We're starting a point in history prior to the creation of man. The verses we are about to read describe a time when the archangel Lucifer was placed in charge of the Garden of Eden prior to his rebellion against God. You can read about this in Ezekiel 28, verses 14 through 16. Verse four, beginning verse 14. You were the anointed cherub that covers. I established you. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked back and forth in the midst of the fiery stones. You were perfect in your ways from the day you were created. Till iniquity was found in you. By the abundance of your trading, you became filled with violence within, and you sinned. We read in verse 14, uh, we read in verse 14 that we are not talking about a human, but a spirit being called a cherub. Verse 15 describes this cherub as perfect in your ways from the day you were created. And the end of verse 16 tells us this cherub, which was renamed Satan, the adversary, became with, filled with violence, and he sinned. Therefore, before the creation of man, there was law. Remember, if there was no law, there would be no transgression, and yet Satan sinned. Therefore, there had to be a been law. What law was in effect before the creation of mankind, you may ask? The law of love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. It is written in Matthew 24, verses 34 through 38. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Then one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, telling him, testing him, saying, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. Satan transgressed the first commandment, in addition to the sixth, ninth, and tenth. So there was law prior to the creation of humanity. Then when was there no law, and therefore no transgression? Let's remember two verses before we go to the scriptures that reveal the point in time when there was uh, no law, and therefore no transgression. The first is Galatians. 5 verses 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. Here we read there is no law against love, joys, joy, peace, and other fruits of the Spirit. The second verse we want to look at is in 1 John 4 verse 8. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Here God revealed to us that He Himself is love. With that background and understanding, let's go to the verses in the Bible to the point in time when there was no law and therefore no transgression. 
We're going to start uh, in John, we'll read John uh, 1, first, uh, John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. But well, here it is. This is the only time when there was no law. This is the only time when there was no possibility of transgression. This is the only time that was, there was only love against which there is no law. The point of this is to show that the law could not have been nailed to the cross because sin, sin still exists. No law means no sin. And no sin is not the state of humanity today. The importance of understanding that neither the law nor sin was nailed to the cross brings us to the next point of today's discussion. John 3, 16 and 17. I mentioned in the beginning of today's discussion that perhaps the most well-known verse in the Bible speaks of the Passover. We've also read that belief and obedience were required to score a bullseye and not miss the mark. We will read in the next verse how God, the Father, spoke of the requirement of faith. And we will uh, read later how God, the Son, spoke of the requirement of obedience. First, the words of God, the Father, regarding faith. John 3, verses 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that who ever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. These two verses describe the Passover. This is the shed blood of the unblemished Lamb of God that paid our death penalty. Verse 16 took place on the 14th of Nisan in 30 or 31 AD. However, this is still not a get-out-of-jail-free card. As we see in verse 16, that it was only those that would believe or have faith in Jesus that would not perish. So, belief is required for redemption. The question is, what does it mean to believe? Belief is tied to obedience. We just read from God the Father about the faith that is required to redeem us from uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now let's read from God the Son about the obedience that is required to redeem us from eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Let's read Matthew 19, verses 16 through 19. <clears throat> Matthew, starting in chapter 19, verse 16. Now behold, one, called, uh, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. But if you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? Jesus said, You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, and you shall not love your neighbor as yourself. Notice what the topic of conversation is. What must be done to inherit eternal life? This is the exact same subject that was being talked about in John 3.16 by God the Father. Notice there is no apparent major difference between the two methods of inheriting... Uh, let me start over with that. Notice there is an apparent major difference between the two methods of inheriting eternal life. In John 3.16, God tells us that whoever believes in His Son shall inherit eternal life. And in Matthew 19, verses 18 and 19, Jesus is saying that one must strive to obey the Ten Commandments in order to inherit eternal life. So is there a contradiction? Is it faith or works that is required to inherit eternal life? Turn to John 14, starting verse 15. If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever, the Spirit of truth, 
whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Notice verse 17. The world cannot receive the spirit of truth. So, how can the world believe in something they don't even know about? They obviously can't. Now back up to verse 15. If we love Jesus, we will keep his commandments, which are the same ones he just told the individual that wanted to enter uh, into eternal life to keep, the Ten Commandments. At this point, it might help uh, to remember that the law was not nailed to the cross. It is only those that keep the Ten Commandments that Jesus will pray the Father to give another helper to. <clears throat> it is only those individuals that have the Spirit going within them that can inherit eternal life. The only conclusion that can be drawn from these verses when we put them all together is that the belief in Jesus Christ that is required in order to have eternal life requires striving to keep the Ten Commandments. Therefore, the faith of John 3.16 requires obedience to the Ten Commandments. Faith and obedience are lacking in all those that will not be allowed to enter, uh, that will not be allowed to inherit eternal life at this time. God's plan of salvation will still be offered to all humanity. The Passover still paid the death penalty for everyone that will believe and obey. Everyone just isn't being called now, and so won't have the opportunity to believe and obey until the last great day. That leaves us with another question. Specifically, can we enter into eternal life just by keeping the commandments. Remember, Adam had a chance for eternal life by eating uh, of the tree of life. Instead, he chose to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everyone since then has also had, uh, chosen to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Everyone, that is, except our Passover lamb. Jesus Christ ate only of the tree of life. He was sinless. Through faith, he obeyed the commandments of God, which included every single one of the Ten Commandments, which define the two laws of love. We are told in James 2.10 <clears throat> that if anyone, including Jesus, had violated the least of the commandments of God, he would have been guilty of violating them all. That would have been sin. For sin is a transgression of the law. That transgression would have also resulted in the eternal death of Jesus Christ because sin was not nailed to the cross. Missing the mark still imposes the death penalty on all that sin. <clears throat> Let's consider the following verses. First Leviticus uh, 18 verse 5. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments which if a man does, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Now the middle of Nehemiah 9, verse 29. Yet they acted proudly and did not heed uh, your commandments, but sinned against your judgments, which if a man does, he shall live by them. Now Romans 10, verse 5. For Moses writes about the, uh, the righteousness which is of the law. The man who does these things shall live by them. There are others, but let's re read one final one in Galatians 3, verse 12. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. All these verses tell us that if a person that obeys the laws of, that person that obeys the laws of God shall live by them. That is exactly what Jesus did. Obeying the laws in faith results in inheriting eternal life. If not by obedience by, of, to the law, by what other measurement could Jesus be proclaimed sinless? By what other measurement would his death on Passover pay the penalty for our sins? The reason there are so many scriptures that tell us that the law brought death and not life is because all the rest of us took of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil instead of the tree of life and violated the law. It's the violation of the law 
that resulted in death, not the law itself. It was the violation of the law whereby sin entered the world and through it, death. As we read, Passover was the sacrifice of Jesus uh, to pay the death penalty for our sins. After he paid that penalty, he was buried. After three days and three nights, he was resurrected. Let's read about that in Acts 2, verse 24. Whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible <clears throat> that he should be held by it. The question is why? Why was it not possible that Jesus should be held by death? Death could not hold Jesus because he had faith in the Father and obeyed his Father's commandments. 100% of the time. In John 5.10, we read that Jesus kept his Father's commandments, and in Luke 22, verse 42, we read that Jesus submitted his will to the will of the Father. Jesus was sinless. Now, the Bible has many, many verses that tell us that it is our faith, which is a gift of God, that will now save us from eternal death. We won't read those because they are already very familiar to us. The point that many of us are unfamiliar with is the fact that we all had the opportunity to eat of the tree of life, and it was only Jesus Christ that had the faith to do so. What are we to do now? What do we do with the law? Jesus plainly told us that no, that to enter eternal life, we had to keep the law. And his father said that to enter eternal life, we must believe in his son. The question can be answered with these three verses from the Bible. James 2, verses 18 through 20. James 2, verses 18 through 20. But someone will say, you have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. But do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? It is our works, our obedience to the Ten Commandments, that prove our faith. Both the words of Jesus and his Father are brought together in these verses. In order for us to have the faith required by John 3.16, we must continue to obey the Ten Commandments even when we fall short and miss the mark. When we do fall short, it is the Passover that pays the penalty of death in our place. <clears throat> it was the death penalty that was nailed to the cross on Passover. Because the Passover sacrifice of Jesus, our sins are forgiven if we confess them. Turn to 1 John 8. 1 John 1, verses 8 and 9. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Yes, your sins and mine are forgivable. Passover is an annual reminder that Jesus paid the penalty for our sins. This Passover... As we seal the new covenant with the blood of Jesus Christ, and as we, as unique members of the Church of God, eat a unique piece of broken, unleavened bread and become one body with Christ, let's remember that we have been passed over from eternal death to eternal life. Today, while it is still called today, let us not miss the mark as the Israelites did in the wilderness, but let us believe and obey and inherit eternal life, and become born again children of God. And this first step in God's plan of salvation, let's remember that when we missed the mark, it was Jesus Christ that scored a bullseye for us. If you'd like to learn more about the different ways and times that Jesus Christ scored a bullseye for us when we missed the mark, get a copy of our free booklet, Entitled, Should You Observe God's Holy Days 
or demonic holidays. Just log on to our website at www.ccog.org. Click on the Literature tab, click on Books, Booklets, and download the free booklet. There's no obligation on your part. You don't have to leave your email or uh, create an account. Or do anything other than just download any or all of the free booklets you want. This is Steve Dupuy with the Continuing Church of God.